Welcome to the Speak Like a Leader podcast with John Bates. Welcome to the show. I've got a very special guest with us today. And before I introduce her, I just want to tell you that if you find yourself interested in pursuing your TED-like talk, if you find yourself interested in making your communications even more impactful and connected and uh, creating trust and loyalty, I've got a program. It's an eight-person cohort. It goes for 10 weeks, and it is called the Speak Like a Leader Experience. And you can find out more about that at ed, that's for education, ed.executivespeakingsuccess.com. Uh, my why is to bring out what's awesome inside you so that you can have the impact you want to have in the world. And now let me introduce our guest. With me today is Sharon Gynup. She's an author, a journalist, an editor, a photographer, a producer, a speaker, a National Geographic explorer, a global fellow from the Wilson Center. And we met years ago when she was a speaker at TEDx Hoboken. Isn't that right, Sharon? <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> well, and, and you know, just thinking back on that, just since that's that's where we met and where where we're kind of starting this conversation, I do remember a a a, a somewhat different Sharon Gynup that I met that first day, right? Because you had been asked to speak at uh, TEDx Hoboken, and speaking kind of wasn't your thing yet. Is is that a way to say it? Well. That was June of 2014. So wow. it's more than seven years ago at this point. <laughs> oh, wow. And I was asked by the organizer to speak on tigers because myself and photographer Steve Winter, who's also a big hero of mine, you two who's are so an, yeah, National Geographic photographer, were going to be releasing a book at the end of the year on tigers. And I knew yes. I was going to have to do you know, book talks and, and readings. And I was utterly petrified of public speaking. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I remember so badly that if I had to get up in situations and even just introduce someone, you know, hello, this is blah, blah, you know, whatever. Yeah, right. I had to have it on a piece of paper and read it and my hands would be shaking. Yeah. Yes. So, you know, this was a paralytic fear. Yeah. And I just knew that I was going to have to learn to do this because of the book. So I took the uh, jump in the deep end approach and, yeah. and agreed to do it. And part of the reason I agreed to do it was because I was told that there would be some coaching, mm. which was you. Yeah, that's how I got into your life. Yes. And uh, I guess it, it was a good lengthy talk. It was, I don't know, somewhere 11, 12, 15, 14 minutes. It yeah. was long enough. And, yes. um, and I didn't die. People didn't even know I was nervous, which was miraculous. Yeah. And, you know, really, um, it really changed the course of my career moving yeah. forward. It gave me a much larger voice to um, share information from. Yeah. And that's what I want to get to here in just a second is all the things that you're up to and the things that make such a big difference. And I do just want to say that for me, you know, I, I think people have even heard me say this on the show before, but look, public speaking should be scary. It's terrifying to get noticed by the group. Look what happened at Jesus and Joan of Arc and Martin Luther King and John F. Kennedy and Socrates and on and on, right? So it makes total sense, right? And you are the example that I, you know, you are an example of what I talk about all the time, which is that it's not about being fearless. Fearless, as my dad, the combat Marine taught me, it, that'll get you killed. You know, you don't want a fearless <laughs> foxhole buddy, right? You want someone who has courage, someone who has their fear, but gets over their fear because something matters more to them than their fear. And for you in that moment, it was tigers forever. It was saving big wild cats 
in the wild. And I got to tell you, I have a couple of copies of that book upstairs. It's It sits where I see it all the time. I think of you all the time. It is an absolutely luscious, gorgeous, amazing book. So if you're listening to this and that sounds good, I mean, the photo photography in there and this and the writing and everything is just wonderful. And, you know, you were scared, I remember, and you did it anyway. You had courage. So I want to thank you for stepping through that fear and doing it anyway, because now look at what you're doing, right? Will you tell us a little bit about that? Well, I, I think I should stay, take 12 steps backwards. Okay. Um, I, um, you know, I've had a lot of things to overcome in my life. I, hmm. um, my mother died when I was 14. I dropped oh. out of high school when I was 16. Mm. Uh, it took me eight years to get through college on my own. I studied photography. I picked up a camera. Uh -huh. A camera is what compelled me. Mm. Um, there was a real choice at one point whether I was going to be a photographer or a writer, and I continued to write. Mm. And you know, after some years working as a freelance photographer, I realized that I really wanted to learn to write. So I went to graduate mm. school, and I studied science and um, journalism in a master's program at NYU. Uh huh. Um, the science was really tough because I was a high school dropout and I didn't study much science in college. Yeah. And I became a science writer. I write on science, environment, and health. And, you know, not long out of grad school, I landed a job with the Wildlife Conservation Society in, uh, in the Bronx. Mm -hmm. Um, and I launched a book series for them called State of the Wild. Oh. And I wasn't seated with the PR people. I was seated with the biologists. So yeah. I had the chance to spend two and a half years, you know, going to these brown bag lunches, you know, sitting down with scientists from around the world and learning about conservation biology. Yeah. So that was my training ground. And the first volume, you know, one third of content focused on hunting in the wildlife trade and then mm. all kinds of other environmental issues, ocean, land. Mm -hmm. Um, and there was some climate change uh, essays in that first book. The second yeah. volume, one third of content focused on zoonotic disease, which, you know, that was back in 2005. Oh, man. And, and epidemiologists <laughs> and veterinarians and, you know, uh, public health uh, officials were jumping up and down then about what we're living now, a yeah. pandemic such as this. Oh, so, Ugh. you know, it's, it's so interesting the way one's, you know, backgrounds weave together. Like, as a photographer, yeah. as a writer, I've had the opportunity to be in the field with biologists across the world in some very remote places. I've seen field science. I've been in labs. I've seen lab science. Um, and, um, you know, at this point in my career, I really want to weave together, you know, all of it wildlife, yeah. ecosystems, the interconnectivity of life, the way that, you know, human uh, disturbance, dis disturbance has created the Anthropocene, you know, which yeah. is an age in which, you know, every aspect of the planet, including, you know, the geology of the planet is impacted by human activity. Yes. So, you know, again, that touches everything from, you know, climate change to loss of species to pandemics. Yeah. So, um, you know, within that context, it's really important to have a broad voice. You know, mm. when I started out as a photographer, photography was it. Carrying a camera on your shoulder, you were a weird person. You yeah. know, no, nobody did that, <laughs> right? Uh-huh. Um, you and Peter Parker, right? So, um, you know, and then I became a writer. And then, you know, cell phones have now made you know, a, a very different kind of visual language that everyone shares, right? Yeah. And video has been become a primary means of communication. Um, podcasts also, people want to yeah. listen, people want to see um, in a different way. So, you know, I, I've made an effort to continue to expand my skills to both, um, you know, incorporate other medium. Yes. Uh, other mediums, you know, again, from um, public speaking, and putting together panels and, you know, to, um, you know, consulting on films and, and um, writing and producing and voice doing voiceovers for multimedia pieces. And um, it's really, I think it's really important for me to continue to jump in the deep end. Yeah. 
Well, I mean, it's, it, it scares me at every step of the way. I, I must yeah. say, I, I, um, I chaired a panel at the, for the Wilson Center on, on zoonotic disease and wildlife trafficking maybe two months ago uh-huh. with some of the world's top experts. I was so nervous. Yeah. And the, these people are brilliant. And, yeah. and um, look, I know what I know, and I work really hard to, to you know, be as prepared as I ever can and to yeah. really get my stories right. I really, really am very diligent and careful. Yeah. I, live in, I live in dread fear of getting it wrong, which is, <laughs> which is also the reason I was, you know, scared to death of public speaking. Yes, um, yeah. But um, I still get scared. I mean, sometimes yeah. I still feel the adrenaline rush. My yeah. heart pounds. Not yeah. as much. There's some situations where I'm doing a Zoom. I've been on a panel. I'm doing a talk. And I don't feel the adrenaline rush. And, and I've had this, like, funny little thought in the back of my head, like, look at this. No adrenaline rush. John, yeah. John would be so proud. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just so proud that you stepped up and you keep stepping up, you know, and you keep growing your platform and growing your voice. Because what you're talking about is just one of the most, cr- I mean, s- many of the most crucial issues of, of, our, of our entire time, you know, so. Yes. I mean, look at, you know, single out everything else from what we're calling the sixth extinction crisis, you know, to, you know, ever increasing emergence of infectious disease, most of which are zoonotic, meaning they pass between human uh, animals and humans. But just look at climate change. Look at the way climate change has dramatically escalated over even the last five years, you know, the, the fire in Siberia right now is larger than all the other fires on the planet combined, including the huge fires in California, Greece, fires bur- burning in Turkey. Yeah. You know, there's drought, there's flood. Where I live in Hoboken, New Jersey, just about every time it rains now, there's a flash flood warning. And yeah. that's because there's, in a warmer atmosphere, there's more water in the atmosphere. Yeah. But how many people died, you know, in floods in Tennessee last yeah. week? Yeah, you know, yeah. You know, the floods in Germany this summer, you know, it it's no longer like these hundred year events. It's every five minute events. Yeah. Yeah. Hundred year events every five minutes. That's and I'm sitting in Salt Lake City right now under just this fire driven haze that's coming all the way from California and Oregon. And, you know, the sun is orange and we got to keep the windows closed and it smells like a campfire. And, uh, you know, it just rained on top of the, uh, Greenland ice sheet for the first time. Yep. Like it's never rained there in recorded history and it just rained like that's, that, this is not really good news. It, it's, um, it's not an easy beat being a, a a science environmental reporter. I mean, it's, it's, um. One one colleague of mine calls it the doom and gloom beat. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, but listen, just because we ignore it doesn't mean it'll go away, right? Well, and, and the other thing is, look, that recent UNIPCC report that came mm-hmm. out, it was not good news. Um, but, you know, if now we fight to save whatever species we can, yeah. if we fight to protect you know, remaining wild lands. So, you know, in case the climate does shift and and land that a species needs to to hunt for water, you know, food, you know, changes, right? And they need to move. There's room to move. Um, You know, one thing I learned, one of the very first natural history stories I worked on in in Costa Rica um, as a photographer um, was... um, a lesson in conservation in that people have protected the lands that it's been convenient to protect or yeah. or early on when when a few individuals were prescient enough to yeah. to say we need to save this but you know what it means is that there's a few large tracts of land left on the planet yeah. and and other than that protected areas are what somebody once uh called green measles 
is these right. little protected spots that, you yeah. know, have no connectivity. Animals can't move between them. Yeah. You know, there's, you know, every kind of, of human development in between. Yeah. And um, so, again, like when you add climate change to habitat loss and, and you know, human population growth. Um, yeah. You know, there were three billion people on the planet around the time I was born. We're going on eight billion. Yeah. So, you know, resource use and, and then add things like plastics. I mean, there is such an intense suite of threats yeah. that um, it's particularly important to fight the good fight right now yeah. and, and save what we can, cut back carbon emissions, yeah. save land, you know, you yeah. know, regulate toxic chemicals that, you know, are going to make us sick or you know, damage children's brain development or, yeah, and, and you know. And last for a long time in the environment. Right. So, I, you know, it, yes, th these, these are difficult problems and they're heavily interrelated. Yeah. Um, but there are solutions and there's a lot of really smart people coming out with brilliant solutions that are really unique. And I think, you know, I think it's important to look at the complexity of, of these problems, you know, as they interrelate. But the obvious solution isn't always the best solution. And I've seen, you know, many situations where using a counterintuitive approach brings, you know, very surprising and successful results. So I, yeah. I think you know it's it's really important for people to, to care, to act, to think differently, mm. and and every one of us can contribute in some way. Yeah. Well, you know, the, the, speaking of counterintuitive results, you know, I, I think back to Hans Rosling's TED talk, um, where he shows the change in the developing world from big families and short lives to smaller families and longer lives. And, you know, it, it, I think that for a lot of people, it was counterintuitive to think that saving lives could reduce population, right? That does, what are you talking about? Well, when you save lives, people don't like, they feel like their kids are going to make it to adulthood and they don't have to have 20 so that a couple of them make it to adulthood. And, um, and I think that you're, you're really right about there being solutions that are maybe counterintuitive or non-obvious right now. Um, I think of all the articles that I've read in the economist that where they keep pointing out over and over that the cost of mitigating climate change is just far lower than the cost of dealing with it, you know? And I think it's the same with all of this stuff. Uh, you know, I, I, I read your article in, um, in, uh, is it Manga Bay? Yes, correct. Yeah. And now if people want to find you, they can go to Sharon com, And there's some links there to a lot of the things that we're talking about. It's S H A R O N G U Y N U P.com. That'll be in the show notes. But, um, in that article, you, you, you know, we are still in the midst of what is truly an unprecedented global event. We've had global pandemics before, but never when we were this interdependent on each other, never when, you know, it was, there was this time in, in the world's history and, um, it's been disruptive, right? And, and we've known this was coming, like you said, since before 2005 and, uh, yeah, I'd love to talk about some things that you think we could do to avoid the next one, because I think what, what I don't really want to think about right now as I'm just wishing this one was over is that there's another one right behind it. If we're not, if we don't take steps. So I'd love to talk about that. And I, and I'd love to, you know, hear a little bit, cause I know in that article, you talk about the impacts of this just on the global economy and things like that. And also wonder, you know, if you've got any opinions about like what we got wrong this time that we could maybe learn from for next time. So, I mean, anywhere you want to go with any of that, I I'd just love to hear it. Cause I know you've been thinking about it. Well, I, as I mentioned, I, I, um, I did a deep dive into zoonotic 
disease, um, you know, back in 2005. Mm. And I remember talking to friends about it and it's like, wow, I, I should really do a book on this. And they're like, who would read it? <laughs> Literally, I was, I was yeah. thinking about doing a book on it and, and my friends discouraged me and I didn't. But um, I spent six months talking to top experts, many of the same people that are currently being interviewed in the media for the last year and a half. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I, I learned, you know, that about 70% of human infectious diseases originate in animals. Let's, fa let's face it, we share a planet. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I've done lots of work over the years. Um, I'm, you know, I'm just about to, you know, finish up like third in a series of articles. You know, one was an overview. One looked at infectious diseases that livestock and humans give to wildlife. And, yeah. and a third one um, looks at the longer history of diseases that are passed between um animals and humans. Mm -hmm. And, and um, you know, I think it's very interesting to note that back in prehistory, there were infectious, you know, diseases. I mean, sure. you know, d disease, viruses, bacteria are part of um, nature and ecology. Yeah. And, and in a landscape in balance, things pretty much balance out, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, the beings that share that landscape with um, bacteria and viruses develop immunity. There's a balance. You know, everything's okay. Once yeah. you start, you know, ripping up a forest, then animal populations change. Often more, you know, mice and disease vectors like ticks and mosquitoes come in, fleas, um, you know, just other like disease carriers, disease vectors tend to mm -hmm. move in to take in and, uh, you know, take over in a, uh, an imbalanced ecosystem. Yeah. Um, and then you're putting people and animals in close proximity to all kinds of wildlife species. Um, right. And, you know, none of them have immunity to each other's microbes. Yeah. You know, they don't belong together. You're, you know, you're putting people in, and, you know, other other primates, you know, non-human yeah. primates and pri and primates together, they they yeah. share a lot of DNA. It's very easy for things to pass between them. Mammals yeah. mammals can pass diseases very very easily. So, yeah. um, you know, it's it, it's it's quite obvious that you know a few activities are the most dangerous, and they never are calculated into environmental assessment impacts. Right. Right. So, you know, if you're going to put a pig farm in the middle of a forest and there's bats there, you know, you're, yep. you're going to dis disturb bat roosting right. areas. What? They're going and to how about this? They're going to Let's... roost over farms and then Nipah virus and that goes to humans, P you know, bats yeah. to pigs to humans, right? Uh, and I was going to say, let's just plant a whole bunch of uh, really tasty mangoes for the bats right over the pig crates, you know, and uh, bingo. Yes. So, I mean, you know, that that's a like a hands-on description, you know. So obviously certain kinds of development, particularly in rainforest areas that are rich biodiverse areas and, yep. and you know, ripping up the rainforest, roads through, et cetera, et cetera, yep. you know, that brings um, people and livestock and, and you know, um, domestic animals in touch with, with wildlife and, and look at where we are, right? The other thing is, you know, eating some kinds of bushmeat is really dangerous. You know, yep. you, you can't eat chimps, you know? Right. I mean, you know. Should be off the menu. Right. We have, we have Ebola. Yeah. We have, you know, HIV, both which, of which appear to have passed to humans from, you know, apes, probably chimps, yep. maybe yep. gorillas. Yep. Um, and then, you know, last but not least, the largest, well, a large threat is the wildlife trade. Yes. And that's, you know, both legal trade and illegal trade. There's a lot of focus on illegal wildlife trade because that includes endangered species. So that also has extinction risk, right? Yeah. But um, legal, um, legally traded animals can carry disease too. You know, it Just might not be. Easily, yeah. yeah. So, you know, a microbe doesn't care whether it's legal or illegal, right? Um, yeah. And many, many animals um, are sold in these open wildlife markets, like across Asia and Africa, and also yeah. in Latin America. Um, and 
there's cages stacked on top of each other and it'll be like wild birds and poultry and maybe some pigs thrown in and some civets and some snakes and some pangolins yeah. and right. you know and and just everything and yeah. they're all sharing uh, you know I'll, I'll be you know I won't be gross. I'll say they're all sharing body fluids. Yeah, um, yeah. And, they're pooping and, on each other. And, they're peeing on yeah, each other. And, and, yeah, uh, and, and swapping microbes. And they've come yeah. from all over the planet. And they're, yeah. they're stacked together in yeah. you know, what essentially becomes one big microbial Petri dish. Well, I mean, I just have ethical issues with that in the first place. Like, I'm, I think maybe secretly in my heart, I, I care about wild animals more than I even care about people. But I realize that the only way I can do anything for wild animals is by doing something for people. <laughs> um, but so, I mean, in the first place, I just think it's just, just makes me so incredibly sad to see those pictures and to think about just the sheer quantity of suffering that that is. And then there's the impact that it has on us and human beings as a species. And now, you know, I've been saying for this whole pandemic, you know, it's our opportunity to have that, uh, that, that understanding that this is one world, you know, like the astronauts have when they look down from orbit and they see the whole planet in one view and I don't necessarily know that we've made the most of that. I, I what, what I started saying soon after that is we're in the same storm, but we're not in the same boat, you right. know? But so, so, yes, I mean, there's very obvious, you know, empathy and animal welfare issues. But, yeah. um, you know, with many, many people, that's a harder sell. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I mean, it, it, again, culturally... Um, our perception of animals, you know, changes in many places around the world. But yeah. I think there's been a lot more attention to this issue because of this pandemic, because it's a yeah. lot easier, you know, it's a lot easier for people to understand when they're stuck at home, you know, their kids can't go to school, they've lost their job, um, you know, they're isolated by themselves, they haven't seen their you know, their mother in a year, you yeah. know, or you know, whatever it is. It's their just like father in law's about to die on a ventilator and no one can even go hold his hand people have lost loved ones friends um you know people that they know have long covid and have you know serious neurological problems memory problems lung issues you know etc etc i mean you know it suddenly you know this kind of vague idea that nobody wanted to think about uh, has become far more real and and you know there was um there was uh a, a pandemic surveillance program that was established under the Obama administration that was dismantled under the Trump administration in 2017. Mm. Um, but even a program like that doesn't go anywhere near far enough. And the yeah. kind of global outcry we're hearing right now also doesn't go anywhere near far enough because yeah. it focuses strictly on surveillance and vaccines and treatments. Yeah. But none of that has, you know, any impact on this happening again. Yeah, the direct and, and, root unle- causes. Unless yeah. unless we're going to look at the ways that our human activities are uh, facilitating this this jump of microbes between species, you yeah. know, the 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 next pandemic is literally like the next plane ride away. Yeah. So, you know, I'm, I've been working on this story about the history of zoonotics, right? So think back, the plague. Yeah. A, a ship, a, a tall ship pulls into port. Yep. On board, there's a lot of sick and dead sailors. Yeah. That ship is put in quarantine for 30 days. Yep. That word quarantine was coined for ships that weren't allowed into port because of disease, <laughs> disease right? Okay. Um. So, you know, since they left wherever they came from, you know, months have gone by, right? And, you know, people got sick, it got passed around, a lot of people died, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Now, you can jump on a plane infected with a new emerging disease that no one had ever heard of, like COVID-19, right? Like back in, say, you know, December 2019 or, yeah. or January 2020, you could yeah. get on a plane infected with this thing that nobody even knew what it was yet. 
You could fly across the planet. You could be there, you know, going to parties, going to business meetings, going to a, a massive convention yeah. around a million of peop people in, in, you know, in bars. And then suddenly you come down with symptoms, you know, and then a couple of weeks later, you're really sick and you go to the hospital. And yeah. again, people don't know what this is. Maybe you have pneumonia and you're spreading it all yeah. over the place. Super oh. spreader. One person because yeah. of the way we have, you know, been able to expedite international travel, international trade. You know, it means that these new emerging diseases can now be spread around the globe within days. Yeah. So, you know, it, this is not an issue to ignore. Just like no. climate change, galloping climate change that, you know, is bit by bit ripping the planet apart. Yeah. You know, we can't ignore these massive, massive issues just because corporate profits prefer that we continue on this path. Well, I mean, that's why I keep, you know, the, the, I keep thinking about The Economist because it's not like they don't like corporations. It's not like they don't like international trade. But even a magazine like The Economist is, is very clear and it's very simple to see that like mitigating this is just going to be vastly less costly than dealing with it. Let me give you, know? you two examples. Um, Both of these issues, by the way. Right. You yes. Know? Yeah. About 10 years ago, um, I was uh, sitting in, in a lecture on climate change by some researchers from University of Miami. And, you know, they were, you know, really ahead of the curve because, you know, Miami was flooding through the sewers every time it rained. Yeah. Right. So yes. fl flooding began there far earlier than, you know, many, many other places. And um, I remember that researcher telling us that, um, the first people to be really pushing to address climate change was the insurance industry exactly. because they understood the financial implications, not just of flood, but of drought and and fires, right? Yes, yes. Here, here's a second um, example that uh, looks at zoonotic disease. Um, uh -huh. In a normal year without a pandemic, there are more than 1 billion zoonotic disease cases that kill roughly a million people. That's a normal year without anything extraordinary. It kills a million people, right? Wow. Um, the SARS outbreak in 2003, that was in eight countries, right? It uh -huh. didn't become a global pandemic, right. but, but it was scary. You know, it yes. was not as contagious as this coronavirus. It too is a coronavirus, yes. but yes. you know, it, it cost $40 billion. In contrast, a, a U.S. congressional report that came out in June projects the cost of like lost economic output from COVID-19 at $28 trillion, $28 trillion. Yeah. So if you're talking about whether, you know, you get to go put a new palm oil plantation in Indonesia, like cutting down the rainforest, um, yeah. and, you know, killing some of the last, like, you know, orangutans, orangutans and, and whatever else, um, you know, again, conservation issues aside, yeah, you know, that is a price tag that every one of us pays for corporate profits. Yeah. Yep. So, you know, what, what experts like Steve Osofsky, um, at Cornell, emphasize he's a veterinarian yes. that ha was one of the early architects of a a one health approach to um to not only health but planetary health right that right. understands that human health wildlife health and and ecosystem health are inextricably linked and you know if if we're going to have a healthy planet with you know clean air to breathe and clean water to drink and and food to eat you know then we need to um consider um environmental impacts in our economic decisions and yes. ever more so moving forward um you know for all those reasons for our own survival but also um because of the zoonotic disease threat well, you know i mean one of the things so you know 
this is a whole other discussion in itself, but one of my favorite, three of my favorite books in the whole entire wide world are Guns, Germs, and Steel, 1491, and 1493. And one of the things that I just have not been able to keep thinking about over and over and over is the fact that, at least in North and South America, this is not the first time that this has happened. And my understanding from the book 1491, which is about the pre-Columbian Americas, is that there were just vastly, I mean, vastly all caps, more people here than anybody ever thought until we finally got better at realizing what, what actually was going on. And that initial contact with Columbus before anybody came over on the Mayflower or any of that wiped out something like 80% of the population on both continents because of what were essentially zoonotic diseases that Europeans just had become endemic, right? Well, it was, it was both zoonotic and infectious diseases, but you uh -huh. know, small smallpox was was the big one, right? Uh -huh. yep. Inf influenza, you know, uh -huh. the, there were there were flus that were very yep. very deadly that again, yep. you know, no no immunity to. There's yep. also things like syphilis, right? Right. So so all of those were you know were old world diseases, not new world diseases. Yeah. Yes. So, so yes, that, that was that's. That's one, yeah. you know, really good example. Hey, the plague came from Central Asia, yeah. right? Yep. Um, and, you know, spread across the globe, um, yeah. you know, with, with numerous, you know, very, very deadly outbreaks um, Waves, yeah. it, that, you know, killed off, you know, much of the European population. Yeah, and, yeah. I mean, no, I mean pl the... plagues like we can't even imagine now. Exactly. I mean, and there's just nothing that doesn't say that the next one couldn't be even more contagious and even more deadly. Like, well, hey, we're very lucky that Ebola doesn't live well in the atmosphere, right? right? If if Ebola transmitted the way that uh, COVID transmits, this whole thing a aerosol, would a whole lot. yeah, Aeros right, yeah, exactly, right. exactly. Um, but you know, I think it's very, very important to note that. You know, it's not that animals are the enemy. No. And, and you know, I think early on, you know, decades ago, um, when, when more um, epidemics started to appear, there was like more emerging diseases that really started appearing, um, greater frequency, you know, around the 1950s, you know, an area that, uh, an, an era that's called what, the Great Acceleration? When suddenly yeah. human population really grew, um, you know, as as a result of antibiotics specifically, yep. right? Yeah, yeah. And yep. and you know, development really grew dramatically across the country. It was um, uh, across the nation, right? Yep, suddenly, yep. you know, massive deforestation and and development, and and with it, much greater frequency of of emerging zoonotic diseases, right? I don't um, think I realized that, Sharon. Yes. Uh, starting around then, it, it increased dramatically as a result of our human activity and, and population growth. Uh-huh. Um, and, um, you know, that, that is now spread more easily. So it's a com it's a one, two yeah. punch, really. Right. Yeah. Um, so was there a part of that question I didn't answer? No, no. I, I mean, I, I I think the thing that I would wonder about, maybe there is, um, is so I, I mean it's just embarrassing to me how badly we failed this test as a planet, you know, and I I wonder what lessons you think we could learn from what I think is just an unmitigated disaster of a response, <laughs> you know. Well, um, I I do remember what I wanted. One last point I wanted yes, to make please. with that last question. Um, I I was saying that early on, um, some of the response was killing animals. If they're giving us oh, the diseases, yes. let's kill Just animals. Get rid right? of them. Yeah. Which no, you know, made the prog the problem far worse because it yes. further disturbed ecosystems, and then you know, the more out of balance, the 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 more problems. Right. Yes. Yeah. Again, especially things like you know. Mice and 
ve other vectors, right? right. Rodents. Right. Um, but there's a lot of species that carry a lot of diseases. Again, to right. um, you know, to animals we wouldn't even imagine. Like we only discovered, I think, in the 1970s or thereabouts, that canine distemper takes out big cats. Oh. And you know, there's been epidemics that you know killed some of the less Siberian tigers in Siberia that um, killed, you know, many, many Serengeti lions, oh, um, you wow. know, and, and it's, it's also, it also infects like wild dogs and Af African uh -huh. wild dogs, which are heavily endangered species. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, so, you know, that, that's, that's us bringing our dogs into wild places. Yeah. Right. I mean, yes. you know, I think the lessons, you know, if, if we're going to pay attention is that, you know, going after short-term profits, you know, for a growingly select group of people um, is going to drive this planet to destruction. You know, unless yeah. we start, you know, calculating, um, you know, what's being called economic capital, right? Uh -huh. and, and what ecosystem services um, provide. Yeah. You know, like, are, are you going to rip out that wetland and, and put in a, a strip mall? Yeah. Meanwhile, you know, if you rip out that wetland and, and pave it over, you know, the next heavy rain, you know, that whole development, the houses, you know, everything's yeah. going to flood and then yeah. there's flood damage. Yeah. Right. Yep. So, I mean, wetlands buffer from flooding. Yeah. You know, that's one small example that people don't think of. You yeah. know, forests, you know, filter drinking water for millions of people. Yeah. Um, you know, forests store carbon and, you know, help mitigate climate change. You really yeah. want to cut down that forest? And then, yeah. you know, again, it's a tropical forest that, you know, have a lot of bat species, have a lot of mammals. There's a lot of, you know, potential disease transfer between hoofed animals and your hoofed livestock, or, yeah. you know, et cetera, et cetera. So... You know, unless we start thinking differently and 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 making decisions that um, include both world health and um, planetary health and um, and the overall costs of costs of mitigation, yeah, you know, I I, I can't see us making any progress. But again, if yeah. you're talking about, you know. COVID-19 with a price tag of $28 trillion. Right. I mean, shouldn't that be enough to make people think twice? I mean, I certainly hope so. I, I'm, I'm, I'm cautiously hopeful that we will end up learning something out of this. You know, I, I do think that one of the things that you and your experience and your comments keep pointing to is what we were talking about a little bit before the before the podcast which is just the the i think incredible rising importance of understanding things contextually and understanding things relationally that is seems to be one of the top most endangered species in every bit of news that we get to see right like all context is stripped out all relationship is stripped out it's just the clickbait and the short title and people don't really dig down and understand and and yet i think that now that's more important than it probably ever has been because of just the incredible complexity well I, i'm so glad you raised that i mean i i i think back to you know, earlier points in both my career and, you know, my, my partner, photographer Steve Winter's career. Yes. Um, you yes. know, Steve has been a National Geographic photographer, you know, doing wildlife stories for, you know, more than 20 years. And, yeah. and uh, you know, decades ago, you, you were given, you know, weeks in the field to, you know, go and, and, and photograph a story or right. report a story. Yeah. There's very, very few publications now that, that, pay for field time. I mean, obviously yeah. we can't travel right now because of COVID right. restrictions. Yeah. Um, but, um, you know, you just have to bang out quick stories and, and, yeah. and, uh, journalism actually in, in many venues, um, many outlets 
pay less than they did when I graduated from grad school 20 oh. years ago. So, you know, in order to continue doing our work, and Steve has produced three one-hour documentaries, um, numerous, numerous stories for National Geographic. He, mm -hmm. he speaks globally for National Geographic Live and... Mm -hmm. um, you know, and and I report on, you know, a wide range of environmental issues. Um, yeah. Um, in order to continue doing our work with some collaborators, a couple of filmmakers, um, Bertie Gregory, uh, Alex Brzezowski, and, and others, um, we're launching a nonprofit called Big Cat Voices, which will be launched very soon. Um, and through that, we are trying to fund... Um, important uh, wildlife conservation ecosystem, you know, climate change stories that, and you know, zoonotic disease, all those issues. That's our core issues. We're trying yeah. to fund um, stories and and films through this nonprofit because that will allow us to continue to have the impact that um, you know we want to have. Yeah. And and you know, both Steve and I have done work that has led to tangible impact. Yes. Um, I did a year-long investigation into um, a tiger uh, venue in, in Thailand, uh, yes. the Thai Tiger Temple that was a Buddhist monastery that doubled as a tiger petting attraction. It uh -huh. brought in about three million a year you know, on the books, but just with tourism. Right. Um, but I was able to prove that they were breeding, killing, and shipping tigers into the um, Asian black market trade to China. Oh. And um, four months later, after that published in National Geographic, under serious pressure, the Thai government shut it down and confiscated um, you know, the rest of what had been 178 tigers. Oh, man. Um, you know, it was something that Steve did. He, um, he spent two years working on a story on cougars in the United States, which are also mountain lions. You know, they have yes. a lot of names, right? Same yeah. species. Um, and he, he photographed them in the wild in, in Wyoming, and he photographed them um, in uh, Southern California, because there's yeah. a lot in the hills there, right? Yeah. And, you know, Steve gets these ideas in his head. Uh, he decided <laughs> that he wanted a picture of a cat under the Hollywood sign. And he yeah. got in touch with the biologist working there, Jeff Sickich, and um, told him that. Jeff laughed at him. And uh -huh. six months later, he said, I don't know how it happened, but a cat crossed the eight-lane 101 freeway, and they're in Griffith yeah. Park in, in L.A. Yeah. So Steve set up camera traps. It took him 14 months, but he got that picture. There's yes. a, a night shot of, of that, that cougar P-22 under the Hollywood sign. Yeah. Nat, Nat Geo broke protocol and... Um, didn't run that picture, but another picture of P-22 with the lights of L.A. behind ran on the right. cover of the L.A. Times even before the Nat Geo story yep. ran. Yep. And P-22... I distinctly remember yes, that. Yes. Yeah. P-22 became a celebrity yep. um, and became the poster, poster animal for the need for a wildlife overpass to connect the only two protected areas there in Southern California, not yeah. just for cougars, but for, you know... For everything. For all the area's yeah. wildlife. And, um, and, you know, a lot of people worked really hard and Steve donated, you know, those pictures for use. Yeah. One nonprofit, the National Wildlife Federation, um, a woman named Beth Pratt did a life-size print, a cutout. She carried it around to the governor's office, to funders, to, That's you know, awesome. California transportation agencies. And they're breaking ground this year on what will be California's first wildlife overpass and the largest wildlife overpass in the world. That's so great. Media can make a difference. Yes. But, not you know, it's not just media. We can all make a difference. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, just just because I'm proud of it, here in Salt Lake City, just up the road from where we live, crossing I-80, is a very big wildlife overpass. And they even have, uh, I think they have a camera there and you can see all, like the bear and the moose and all this stuff that go across there. And uh, that's what I think about every time I drive anywhere. I just want to put overpasses or underpasses everywhere. And just as I drive past the staggering amounts of roadkill, 
I'm just like, wow, why couldn't we just, every time we build a road, we just got to every so often put something that goes under or something that goes over so that we just didn't have to just needlessly kill this many animals every day, day in, day out, you know. Well, there, there's ways that it could be done strategically. I mean, mm. you know, um, certainly connecting um protected areas is important yeah, of course that's and, the first yes and and in the west i mean you know there's there's a bunch of um overpasses and underpasses i think i, I was i saw one in wyoming i mean there's mm-hmm. various places around the west yeah. like there's pronghorn migrations those mi- yeah. migration routes that would be really yes. key um there's there's a very famous wildlife overpass i think it's up in banff right yeah uh-huh. um so you know it, it's a it's a model that works uh, yes. and that's and that's that's the point look like we can't erase the roads, right? Right. So what do we do? So we can build, you know, find the best way to build overpasses and the most strategic places to put them. You yeah. know, find find uh, the the design that animals are are most, um, you know, welcome to uh, embrace, right? And, yeah. and actually yes. use, right? Yeah. Um, it, it there there are there are answers. There are mitigations. But there's also hard choices that have to be made. You know, mm. we can't just do whatever we want and then think we can fix it. Yeah. And and I think um, I think if people understand the broader context, perhaps we can all think differently. And I think yeah. that's why it's important to me to not only use a wide range of mediums to to put information out to the public, which is my job as a journalist, right? Yep. Mm-hmm. But um, but to also um, include the history and context that is, again, so often missing from news stories. Yeah. Yeah. Boy, amen. Amen to that. I, I, I mean, yes. <laughs> I'm all for that. Please keep doing it. So, um, you know, I, I know that we're getting to about an hour and I told you I wouldn't keep you too long, but, uh, is there, is there anything that we didn't talk about yet that you just like, if I just, you know, tell us anything you think's important or that you'd like us to know? Well, even though my, my job is really hard, I, Mm. I, you know, look, everybody's job is hard, right? I, I work very, very long hours. I, I, you know, often don't have weekends off. You know, journalism does not pay a lot of money, mm-hmm. no, no matter what your reputation is, unless you have a staff job, and there's very few yeah. of those. Yeah. Um, but I have had such an amazing opportunity to be out in beautiful, magnificent parts of this planet. You know, yeah. I've seen jaguars in the wild. Oh. I've seen tigers in the wild yeah. and leopards and, you know, Africa and India and Latin America and, and, you know, often, you know, staying in rustic, you know, <laughs> bug infested, you know, look out for the poisonous snakes, you know, research stations and, you um. know, just these fabulous, fabulous, you know, experiences. And then working with some of the world's most brilliant minds who take the time to talk to me about their work because it's important to get it out there you know scientific journals are important but you know that's scientists like speaking to their colleagues and furthering the science but you know to get the work out there to get their their you know their research out there where it can make a difference it has to get to the public to inform the public and it has to you know get out to policymakers and um you know, I think that's the um, the last thing that I'll mention is that the most recent part of my own evolution, um, you know, has come over the last five years. I was fortunate enough to be granted, um, you know, a residential uh, fellowship at the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars in Washington, D.C., which is mm. it's part of the Smithsonian, and it was established to inform public policy. Mm. They... Um, they let a journalist in every now and then. <laughs> well, they, I, they say they welcome journalists every now and then. I don't. Uh-huh. Wanna, I don't want to you know, at all. Um, yeah, it could sound you know uh, anything what it is, but it is the most collegial, brilliant group of people I have 
ever had the opportunity to be around. And, wow. you know, over five years, you know, working with both the environment program and the China environment program, I have learned so much about um, both domestic public policy, mm. um, international public policy, um, national security issues, um, mm. and just a wide range of um, perspectives that were not previously part of my considerations when I was looking into stories. Yeah. So, you know, and again, I, I went through further media training there, which, uh -huh. which was, you know, again, further advanced my skills. And, you know, again, I speak on panels and chair panels and, um, and it's a DC audience that includes both, you know, nonprofits and um, decision makers. Yeah. So that has been an incredible opportunity. And I continue to learn. And it's also made me aware of the fact that everything that we have been discussing today, all of the issues we've been discussing today, are national and international security issues. Absolutely, yes. And and raising like wildlife trafficking, for example, to mm -hmm. um, a national and international security issue um, about, you know, eight years ago, um, you know, the, the Brits did a, a great job of putting it on the table. Prince William, Prince Charles, mm -hmm. Hillary Clinton was part of that as well. Uh -huh. And, and it changed the focus. Um, you know, as long as something like wildlife trafficking was an environmental issue, it was way down on the totem pole of, yeah. of, of, you know, national importance. Yeah. You know, once it becomes a national security issue, which it is True. because of corruption, and because mm -hmm. of, of the players. I mean, yeah. you know, this isn't, it, it, often like poaching is like, oh, there's a few poor people and they need to make a living. And yeah. the real issue is that, you know, these are international crime syndicates that, yeah. you know, traffic wildlife, you know, as another product in the portfolio, along with guns and drugs and yeah. human trafficking operations. Yeah. Yeah, and yeah. it's it actually ranks number four in that list as the top four, you know, most lucrative illegal wow. substances traveled, you know, or, or you know, commodities um, trafficked yeah. around the world. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, this is organized crime. So it's, mm. you know, just it's not just a biodiversity crisis. It's not no. just a disease risk. It's also a security issue. And, yeah. and I think, you know, again, I, I don't think I would have understood that to quite the degree that I do now if I hadn't had the opportunity to, you know, be around such brilliant experts over these last couple of years. And I do yeah. remain, you know, affiliated. It's something yeah. I, you know, greatly value. Um, so, you know, I think in general, um, I love what I do. Um, being a photographer is really fun. Writing is much harder work. Being a photographer yeah. is more fun. Um, <laughs> but it is really great to, you know, continue to like learn and do new things. Yeah. Which, you know, you do as, as a journalist anyway, because as you're reporting your next story, you know, yeah. you're, you're talking to experts, you're doing research. It's kind of like, um, living through end of the semester in college for the rest of your life. Yeah, in, yeah. There in, you go. in terms of deadlines, right? Yeah. Um, but it's really a fascinating life, and and I love what I do. I really do. And um, and I, you know, I hope that, you know, Steve and my work, Big Head Voices, our colleagues, um, you know, we can continue to, you know, inform people, inform the public, inform policymakers in in ways that, um, really help us, you know save this planet's last wild places, you know, save, save disappearing wildlife and, you know, help us save ourselves. Yeah. I have a well, two and a half year old granddaughter and, uh, you know, I, I, I want a beautiful world for her to grow up in. Yeah. Yeah. I have a five year old son, same thing. And, you know, I, I think it, 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 I think it, you know, I think I just can't help saying it at the end of the day, all of this stuff, it's not about saving the whales. It's not about saving the earth. Like the earth is going to be fine. You know, it'll shrug us off like nothing if it needs to. And the earth in a hundred thousand years will be fine. I think 
it's about saving ourselves, really. And in order to save ourselves, I think we have to begin, not just begin, but actually completely understand just how much we are a part of the entire global ecosystem and understand how incredibly dependent we are at the end of the day on those wild places being there and being as healthy and functional as we can have them be. You know, that that isn't just about the wild places. I mean, in my heart, yeah, maybe it is, but that's about saving a functional global civilization for ourselves. You know, I I um I I will say it again. I mean, you know, animal health, human health, and ecosystem health are inextricably linked. And yes. and you know, if we if we save wildlife, we save nature, um, we save ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's fabulous. And, you know, I, I'm going to put a link to Tigers Forever because I just, I, I very much encourage you to go take a peek at it and get a copy for your coffee table. Um, it is beautiful. And is Big Cat Voices up on the web yet? Is there, is there a, a, a working website yet or? It, it will be soon. I think we're probably going to launch the um, website in about a month. So yeah, we're, we're, we're right on the edge here. Right on. Well, the minute you launch, let me know, and I will make sure to let everyone know where that is. And, and I assume you're a co-founder of Big Cat Voices. I am. Very good. And uh, if you want to find Sharon, she's at SharonGuineup.com, S-H-A-R-O-N-G-U-Y-N-U-P.com. And uh, Sharon, I, I, it's just so great to catch up with you. And I, again, just want to acknowledge you for doing all the things you do to step up to the plate and make the difference you're committed to making. You're somebody that I think about on an almost daily basis as an example of just stepping through whatever that next barrier might be, because what you're up to just matters too much not to, right? That's true. But um, I mean, if we're doing this mutual admiration society, um, <laughs> doing that TED Talk was probably the most terrifying thing I've ever done in my entire life. Yeah. Um, I literally um, had my first and only panic attack when I was preparing for it. Yeah. Um, just for some history, when I was in first grade and they made me be in a school play, I was so traumatized, I fainted, <laughs> fell on the wow. stage, split my head open, oh. ambulance came and stitched my head back together. Oh I was gosh. so terrified of making a mistake mm. in, in public on a stage with people looking at me. Yeah. I, I don't know where that fear came from, but this was not just, oh, I don't like public speaking. This yeah. was terrifying. And I, don't, I could not have done it without you both helping me write it and, and you know, hone it, but also mm. you coaching me on how to present and, and giving me whatever shred of confidence I could muster. Mm. And also, you know, in the end, um, both you and the organizer, you know, allowed me to have notes. I practiced yeah. as well as I could. But if I was going to freeze up there during the headlights, I was going to be okay. And, yeah. you know, I think I met, re maybe read a sentence here and there. You couldn't tell I was reading. It was so well rehearsed. Yeah. And again, I didn't die. You and didn't die. And it sounded okay. And you know what? With that one talk, jumping in the deep end with your help, you know, I probably burned away a good 60% of my fear in one yeah. fell swoop. That's so great. And, and um, you know, it's opened up whole worlds for me. Thank yeah. you. Thank you very yep. much. You're beyond welcome. You're very, very welcome. And shout out to Elizabeth Berry who is was the organizer of TEDx Hoboken and who had the good sense, I think, and wisdom to break the rules and let you take your notes up there. And I distinctly remember the fact that someone overcoming their fear is vastly more inspiring than somebody who's fearless, you know? And you were a really big inspiration. It, it, 
I'm so glad. I'm so glad we got brought together. And I'm and and thank you so much for that. And you're very welcome. And and thank you for you know inviting me on on your show today. And um, onward and forward. Onward and forward. And I mean, encourage everybody to follow you to check out the things you write. I think what you're writing about is is just. I, I can't imagine more important things than what you're writing about. So uh, I'm happy to introduce you to everyone and anyone who listens. And, you know, I, I look forward to talking again and I wish you all the best with everything. If I can help in any way, you know that I'm at your service. Thank you so much and, and uh, be safe and be well. Thank you. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And thank you for joining us. We'll see you next week on speaklikealeader.show. Thank you for joining the Speak Like a Leader podcast. Go be awesome. Awesome.